So one of the things that I've always wanted to do with being open about all of my aspects of you know, DEI myself, whether mm-hmm. it's my sobriety, whether it's my queerness, uh, whether it's my mental health struggles, I want there to be somebody, like somebody else knows they could go to because they are so open about who they are. The same with sobriety. I mean, the legal profession is a is a big drinking profession. Everything's a happy hour. Everything's a wine event. You know, clients want to go out for drinks. And so me saying, oh, I, you know, I, I, I'm sober, actually. I don't drink. It allows other people, for whatever reason they may not be drinking, to also say, I'm just going to have a close soda or I'm just going to, yeah. you know, it, it just, it opens doors. Yeah, you're giving an invitation. It's like an invitation, like a quiet invitation. Hello and welcome to Unscripted Pivots. I'm your host, Danielle Sproles. Today, we have a guest who is a leader, a trailblazer, and a dedicated advocate for diversity inclusivity in the real estate world. Welcome to Ashley Brakefield. Thanks, Danielle. Nice to be here. We've been trying to get you on for a bit, and it finally is happening. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know. Life's full of unscripted pivots, uh, and we had, we had our share. So Ashley and I first crossed paths as fellow delegates and now as president-elects of our local chapters within Crew Network. Our connection through Crew has given me a unique insight into her passion, dedication, and contribution to the industry. Straight from the heart of San Francisco, California, Ashley is a powerhouse attorney and partner at Ferella Braun & Martel. Her client list includes everyone from large-scale urban developers to private property owners and renewable energy companies. She is the one they turn to for sophisticated land use and real estate matters. With a philosophy that perfectly encapsulates her work, her motto is, quote, from shovel to sale, I develop and implement our client's real property goals. Ashley's stellar career has seen her earning several distinctions, including being named both the Best Lawyers of America and one of the Law Dragon 500 Leaders in Environmental Law. And she has been consistently recognized as the A Northern California Rising Star by super lawyers from 2015 to 2021. And this is not the entire list. It would take up the whole episode. So we're just giving you some highlights. Yet what sets Ashley apart is her dedication to global diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. She's not only a leader in her field, but also a beacon for change, embodying the progress and inclusivity the real estate industry is striving for. Welcome, Ashley. That was so much, Danielle. I don't even I don't even know that none of that none of that feels true on this Friday. But thank you. I appreciate all of that. Well, you're 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 humble, that's why, but it's all true and there's more. I mean, really when you know, we know each other just a little bit, but when I started to research on you and, and look about, I thought, wow, look how much you have accomplished and all that you continue to do both in and out of your legal profession. I mean, it's remarkable, and I'm really, really excited to have you on today. So how you doing? Everything good? Everything's good. Everything's good. As you know, I just celebrated my 10-year wedding anniversary yesterday with my wife, which was awesome. <laughs> Happy anniversary. <laughs> Happy Thank anniversary. You. Thank you. So it's been one of those one of those weeks of celebration. So you're catching me on, on a happy Friday, which is great. Well, that beats uh, two weeks ago when you guys all had the stomach virus and we were trying to do this episode and it was a little bit nuts, but you know, that's what, that's what happens in life. That's what happens. Exactly. So, you know, on this podcast, Ashley, you know, 
we, I don't want to keep it linear. I don't want to be bringing you back to when you were 10 or anything like that. But I like to start kind of like where the pivots happened in your life that started to really set the tone for all that you would do and you would embrace. And so you can begin where you'd like, but I mean, usually it's like high school, college, or, you know, where were you going? What was your direction and, you know, how you, it led up to here? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny. I, I remember when you were trying to figure out the title for your, your podcast and you were you were kind of brainstorming about it. And it, unscripted pivots, I think, is so great because I, I at least personally can certainly relate to that. So I grew up in Jersey. For those of you who can tell there's something different about my my accent slightly. I don't sound like a valley <laughs> you girl and from me California. Both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's, we were drawn to each other's voices, I yes. think. Uh, so yeah. I, yeah, I was I was born and raised in Jersey, and I would say my first real kind of pivot happened when my folks divorced and my mom moved us out to Southern California um, right before my junior year of high school. So mm. I felt like before then, you know, we we bounced around quite a bit. I never really had like one place to call home, and then we moved across the country. That kind of continued. So I feel like I've just been bouncing about um, California now instead of Jersey and uh, went to high school down in Southern California at Valencia High School. We're right by Magic Mountain for, for those folks that ride roller coasters, unlike me. I love them. <laughs> yeah, I, I am terrified of them. I can't do it. But that's, you know, and, you know, I, I kind of had a bumpy, rocky road to getting where I am today, being a, a, an attorney in a, in a law firm. I when I graduated from high school, um, had no real interest in college or doing anything like that. I got semi kicked out from my house or kind of told to sort of live on my own. And so, you know, I was 18, 19. I had a, a steady job. I was making good good money for somebody who's 18 mm. um, and didn't think college was for me. Right. And so it, it took me a little bit to get kind of my feet under me and eventually um, start the, the college train. And in that interim, as I'm open about and as you know about, had my first real struggle with with addiction, which was a, a drug addiction in my kind of early 20s mm-hmm. before I decided to, to go to college. So I spent kind of that period of time, that 18 to 21, just struggling to figure out who I was, struggling with, with addiction and, and, and kind of working and supporting myself. Um, sort of just barely. So that was my, yeah, that was my, you know first what, wait, bit. let's, let's, let's take a pause. I'm always asking the guests to take a pause because we just go rushing through our life. And, and uh, the reason I want to take a pause is because when you're talking about being as young as 18, I mean, sure, that's a legal age, Ashley, but it's certainly, as we know, looking back at it, we're not all that, as old as we thought we were as mature. Right. Yeah. And it sounds to me like you were thrown into independence really quickly and early. And I can see that there was a need to feel better and to feel better quick and to cope, right? And there's so many things that we can um, turn to just to be able to survive. Absolutely. So that must have been a very scary part of your childhood. And, you know, I can relate to that myself. And I I didn't... um, want to go to college when I was at the end of my high school. I was just a party girl in high school. Right. You know, I was kind of like a late bloomer in that field too. And then look where we are today, sister. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> I, I know. It's like, it's you know, we, we got no problem with it. And I think the message out there is, is like, it doesn't have to look like straight A student, you know, book nerd from the get go, you know, and that I, life. Absolutely. Will, yeah. Life will happen. Okay. So, you know, you were self-medicating and you fell into a dark place and struggled there for how long? Tell us a little bit about how you got out of that and uh, then started to really embrace school and and, and a direction. Yeah. I mean, I think it was uh, about a a year and a half of of active drug addiction and pulled myself 
it, it got to the point where I think there was that part of me that realized in my story with addiction generally, if I, if I keep going, that's going to be the end. There was this mm. part of me that recognized when I came up against no serious consequences have happened yet. I haven't harmed anyone else. I've certainly been self-harming, but like there was this moment of clarity that I had that was sort of like, I think I need to stop. And I was honest with my mom and my, my grandmother and said, you know, I have, I have a problem. And they supported me through kind of just getting clean, which I did mm-hmm. uh, on my own because I was trying at, the, at, the, at that time to kind of avoid, you know, interventions and whatnot. And so got clean on my own, got a different job and still felt like I was supporting myself. I was in a better place because I wasn't in active addiction, but there was just something more out there. And at that point I was what, 22, 21, 22 and it was at that point that my grandmother actually came to me and said, look, I, I think you could be more. And if you're willing, I am willing to put you through college wow. and take off some of that burden. My, my dad also chipped in to make sure I wasn't going to work. I was just going to focus on school uh, and keeping myself healthy. And so that's how I got back into school, starting in, in junior college at Los Angeles Valley College down in Southern California, taking a load of classes. Look, look, look at that disruption, right? So like no real college desired at that yep. when it would normally have been, you know, the timeline to do it. And then to go into junior college, you know, now you're working, then you're going to junior college. And then we, we're going to go all the way into law school and where we are today. You're a partner of a big freaking law firm. I mean, like Ashley, really, what what a road, what a road that was. Yeah. I love to hear that you had the support of your mom, well, your whole family and your dad, but you're, that your grandmother was stepping up. When we see other women, right, you know, generationally speaking and saying, hey, you can do it, you know, woman yeah. to woman and really instilling you uh, the hope and, uh, of what you could become and achieve. But, you know, I want to pause for a second, too, because you you are a lesbian and you're yeah. out there. I'm going to sound awkward because I'm not. So I don't really know politically what is correct or whatever, to be honest with you. But how old were you when you spoke to your, your parents or, you know, who was the first person you told? Because that had to be as much of a revelation as like, oh, wow, I, I now find myself addicted. I don't have serious consequences under my belt, but I can see the trajectory of this problem. So what, what came first? Did you, did you find that were were you using drugs to also kind of like quell the fear around coming out or were you just open from the beginning? What's the story there? When we moved to California, so I had, I had always questioned when I was growing up in, in Jersey, you know, I I felt different. I didn't have the same interest in in boys that some of my, Mm -hmm. I was a big soccer player. So I was on soccer teams and everyone was chasing boys and I just didn't have an interest in that. And you were chasing soccer balls. (laughs) I was chasing soccer balls. I was like, why are we so focused? It just, it just was confusing to me. And as I, you know, and again, you're looking at what, 1995, 94. So, you know, around that time, especially in kind of where I was in a more conservative part of New Jersey, that was not something, you know, being queer, being gay, being a lesbian was something that was, you were, even if you thought that might be the possibility, there was bullying and there was, certainly not acceptance. And so I started questioning whether that was possible as it became, you know, more information became public, the internet started, you could, you could, you could research, you could search on things like Ask Jeeves, I think was the big search engine back in the day. (laughs) There were chat rooms and and stuff like that. And that's how I started questioning. And then when we, when we moved out to California, actually the, the very day we moved out, I sat my mom down and was like, I have, I have something to tell you. 
and she was convinced I was going to tell her that I was like pregnant or something like that. And yeah, so, right. That's the first thing. Exactly. <laughs> she was like, "Oh my it. god!" Yeah. With our daughters, it's like, yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> she because I had been I had been like dating a boy because I was like, yeah. "That's what you do." Okay. And I was like, "No, not not pregnant. I think that I I think that I'm gay." And her response was one of absolute relief that that was the the big story. And so one of the things that I have benefited from is a family that has always been incredibly supportive of my sexuality and of my identification as, as queer or a lesbian. And mm-hmm. um, so it's interesting. I think I came out before I, you know, went into my, my dark kind of addiction spiral. Um, so I was already out. I was very open about it, but I do think that there, especially in the queer culture, there is a, a, a lot of alcohol and drug use. And I think some of that comes from a lot of internalized shame and fear and suppression suppression and and it kind of comes out in in that way so i i'm sure part of that played a bit of a a bit of a role for me you know i mean i've heard somebody say and i mentioned this on an earlier podcast that you know it's what we do it's like costly coping right and so we start to self-medicate because we feel we're not part of and there's an isolation that becomes like this vicious cycle right and and the fear of judgment or shame. And, you know, as I've shared with you, I mean, I'm a mom of four and I have a son who is gay. And when he came out to me, there was a sense of relief on my part just because I thought, okay, finally he's acknowledging it because I always suspected as much, you know, as a mom, we're kind of in tune, like with what our kids are not, are doing or not doing and, and being obviously much older than them. We can kind of compare their path to, you know, people that would mimic that. And so it was really kind of cool and kind of beautiful. And I will tell you, you know, you say in 95, like I was worried when I first suspected this back then, oh, you know, the community is not going to embrace him. And you think of the struggles and today it really isn't that way. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but like these things are so mainstream as is sobriety. And so when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I'm not saying it makes everybody comfortable. It doesn't. And there's still that kind of like trepidation of, you know, if I come out, are they going to say, oh, that's not who I thought that person was, right? And, you know, the truth of the matter is like, it's none of our business what other people think about us. I mean, you know, we're, we're showing up you know, authentically, and we're, you know, living our lives with a moral compass intact, what, what is there to really worry about, you know? And the past, as bumpy as it can be, it's what got us to where we are. And damn, it's good where we are. I mean, look how happy you are and you're a partner in a firm. You just celebrated, what was it, your 10-year anniversary? Wedding anniversary, right? yep. 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 So you both have a daughter. And mm-hmm. okay, so tell me, tell me when, when you, what is your daughter's name? Josephine. So Josephine, when she came, were you already at this law firm? Like, where were you in, in terms of your career? Because what I'm wondering about was like, how did that change? And, and was there any kind of like, um, what was the feedback at the law office when all of a sudden you became a mom? Sure, absolutely. So I joined Ferella. I've been at Ferella my entire career, straight out of law school. So I joined as a first year associate back in 2012, January 2012. And at the time, I was thinking I wanted to be a litigator. And so I was doing environmental litigation. And that's what I was hired in for. I had met my wife, Tina, when I was still in law school. And so we were not yet engaged. I think we got in, yeah, we must have gotten engaged a few months after I started at Ferella. And we got married the next year in 2013. And we then had Josephine in the end of 2015. 
Okay, that's pretty quick. Yeah, they were pretty quick. Uh, there, you had a busy were, five years. I mean, <laughs> we had a busy five years, and and you know there were a couple things that like the the arrival of my kid. There were there were a lot of changes both at work and at home and personally, and so it was a combination of at the time that my wife was pregnant because she carried mm-hmm. our firm was in the middle of actually doing its um, parental leave policies, redoing them. And okay. one of the things that came up was that non-birth parents, so typically dads, it was called paternity leave, right? Only had, I think it was two or three weeks that they were entitled to take. And women, birth parents were, uh, I, I think it was, it was pretty low at the time. I want to say it was like three months or something like that. And yeah. so we were in the middle of revamping that. And when we revamped it, we made them equal. So non-birth parents and birth parents could take the exact same amount of leave. And I was the first non-birth parent who I happen to be a woman, but I was the first non-birth parent who took the full leave at my firm and with the full support of the firm, which was kind of incredible. That's, that's terrific. So super supportive that, you know, the firm has always been incredibly supportive of non-birth parents, of queer parents, of, you know, step parents, adoptive parents, you, you name it. And so I'm fortunate to work in a place that really values family and, uh, and you and value them right back. I mean, as you absolutely. stated, you've been with them since the beginning of your career at its inception, right out of law school. Right. So what, are we talking almost 12 years? What, how long ago was that? Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess it's been, yeah, I guess it's been almost 12 years and I, uh, I've been in for the whole time. I, and I no longer litigate. So, you know, five years into practicing law, I realized I did not have any interest really in being a litigator. I just did, I didn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't doing it for me, but what was doing it for me was the firm and the people that I worked with. And so I came to them and said, I want to stay here, but I want to completely change my practice. And is that possible. So you were going to introduce a, a new practice to them, like a division or a focus that they didn't already have, or what did that look like? I was basically going to transition to the existing real estate group. So okay. there was, I was in the environmental group doing environmental litigation. And what I wanted to do was an unscripted pivot <laughs> over to, yeah, um, <laughs> uh, over to the real estate and land use group and switch from litigation to strictly transactional work. And so that's a big risk for the, for the firm. You know, you're taking somebody who you've been training as a litigator for several mm-hmm. years and you're putting them in a position where they don't, they've never done transactional work. I, you know, leasing and purchase and sale and joint ventures and you name it. And, but they, they were willing to do it and they took that risk and I took that risk and together we shifted me over. And mm-hmm. then I, last year, or start, you know, last year I became partner and was partner. I know, as a, congratulations. Yeah. That is such a big deal. So what I want to know a little bit about is how big is your firm? How, maybe even how big is your department? And are you thinking about growing? Are you part of any kind of active, you know, recruitment there? Or, I mean, the market's not doing so well. So what does right. it look like today? <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. I mean, the market's rough for real estate, right? Just generally. And, and frankly, the market right now is, is rough for, for law firms. I mean, we're a San Francisco-based law firm. We have a, another a satellite office in St. Helena that does primarily wine work. But we only have a few attorneys working out of that office. And so... You know, being in San Francisco, San Francisco's right behind me. It's it's as people have heard, there's a there's a lot out there about how tough it is in San Francisco, and and certainly it, it is. I don't think it's as doom loop as the media would would tell you it is. Um, I think that there's a lot of potential. I think it's just a matter of figuring out what what's next post COVID. But uh, our firm is, uh, I think, we're at somewhere around 130 attorneys. My group has around, I want to say, 15 attorneys total. Okay, in the real estate? Mm-hmm. In our in our real estate group. And among them, we have four associates and, and the rest are partners. So it's, 
it's a it's a decent sized group. We do everything like the the shovel to sale that you mentioned in the beginning is is actually true for our practice. I do you know me in particular. I do everything from the land use entitlements and trying to figure out if we want to purchase this property and how we would develop it to the actual purchase to the actual construction financing to the actual leasing. I mean, these projects become like your children, right? I mean, you see them from like conception to birth, right? And so that must be exciting. Yeah. And one of the things that I love about it is, and which I didn't get in litigation, is you can actually see what what you've done, right? Like I can drive, driving from the office to to my home in, in Richmond in the East Bay, I drive past one of the giant developments that's under construction that I was one of like my my big you know path to partnership projects uh, with one of our great clients and yeah. so you can see it you can see your work in a way that you can't with litigation you know litigation is much more in the trenches with a team and and, and whatnot and at the end you get wonderful hopefully results for your clients but you're not able I, to I see the tangible yeah. yeah I mean I get it but knowing you you know not for a long time but I think fairly well at this point I could see you being a badass litigator out there with your closing argument you know de- you know <laughs> delivering that convincing uh speech I could I could easily see that but I'm glad you're in the real estate we all fall into what we fall into I mean here I am in in you know commercial real estate as well and you know, as you know, I went to law school. I mean, I barely practiced and then all of a sudden started the baby train and, and you know, had four of those in a row, which is which is all good. And here I am still doing title insurance. So right. it's um yeah, it's 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 been a journey. Tell me a little bit about your daughter, Josephine. Does she have interests and you know, do any of them mimic what you and Tina were doing as a child? Like what similarities do you see? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's so interesting. She's she's seven and a half, right? So she's in the summer before her second grade year. So, um, you know, it, and it's it's interesting, the nature versus nurture aspect of being a non-birth parent. Okay. And so, you know, I see so much of Tina physically in her. She, she has the same dark, beautiful hair and beautiful eyes and some of the same. Uh, she's very cautious. She's very big on rule following, which is the opposite of me, uh, but very much my wife. <laughs> yeah, my wife was the okay, one that never, yeah. caused, never caused trouble, never did, you know, was always like straight and narrow kid, never, never, uh, you know, just was always, you know, towing the line. And, and Josie means a lot like that. But then you see her in these moments where she is making her case for something and she's you know, she's, she's always listening and she's always then able to kind of like make a great case for whatever it is that she wants in this way that sounds a lot like me. Yes. Yeah. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You don't have to exactly be that. Yeah. Okay. So so it's, it's, it's always interesting when you're, when you're a non-birth parent, when you're in a queer relationship and, and, you know, genetically Josephine is not obviously mine because she's not um, I, I didn't give birth to her, but people will forget that because she sounds so much like me sometimes when she talks or when she's arguing or when she's trying to make her point and her, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I always use my hands and I'm very expressive. And Let's she can be, very be honest, similar. You, you delight in that. You delight in those, yeah. you know, familiarities. And it's, it's great. It's great. Yeah. And so she's, and she's, um, you know, we were very big on when she was born, like let's her, let her find her, her interests on her own, you know, we get a lot of like neutral colors and we were like, let's just see what she, and the kid has gravitated so much to like beautiful pink princess dresses and the girliest stuff, but then really wants to get in and play soccer and really wants to play softball. And so she's this really nice, like high well-rounded. Like, yeah. Well, it's well-rounded. Yeah. Which is, which is great. She is the, I mean, I, as, as you know, so I, I obviously had my, my early addiction in my twenties. 
And then, you know, the slow burn of alcoholism kind of affected mm-hmm. me from then onward, in, including into my marriage and including into the first couple years of, of my kid's life. And I got sober uh, in, in March of 2018. And a lot of the reason for that was looking at my kid and realizing I had a chance right now, kind of again, that same moment, right? I have a chance yeah. right now to get my to get my shit in order, to be totally mm-hmm. honest, and to acknowledge that I have a problem, like I acknowledged it in my 20s, and to, to stop this, like this cycle so that before she's able to see it. I mean, you know, what a, what a gift this is, okay? Because we know there are so many people out there suffering from um, all sorts of addictions, right? There's, I, I, I mean, that list is too long to even name. And, you know, to recognize that something is gone beyond abuse and to understand what addiction is because it's not about willpower at all where the world at large is going to think that's what it is or, you know, yeah. somebody's weak or bad attitude and it's none of those things. And when you dive into this world to get help, you recognize or you learn. First, you unlearn stuff and then you learn stuff about this. And it's it's really quite revealing, yep. you know. So, What I want to just celebrate about this whole thing is that there's a lot of people that know that they have a problem and they know they have a lot to lose and yet they don't get beyond that. And there's a gift in that, Ashley, because I'm not going to even, you know, credit you with having, you know, quote unquote, the strength for it. You just surrendered and you took a different path. And there are so many people that want to and it just doesn't happen for them. But then you made sure that you kept on that path and you do what you have to do to nurture it. But you're also an educator along those lines, right? You share everything about you. You're very transparent. I think that's why we so immediately got along. And I can see, you know, you got some Jersey roots. And every time somebody's sure. a little shocked by what comes out of my mouth, I'm like, well, I'm from Jersey. Like, that's like, the, that's like my, <laughs> my, it's both my excuse and my explanation, right? Yep. Uh, you know, because I believe in being real. And a lot of times when I am real, I'm not necessarily comfortable about being real. But if I know in that moment, I can help another person, okay, uh, speak their truth if they choose to. And even if they don't, just know silently, they're okay. And they're not alone. And they didn't invent the struggle that they're having, right? There are many people that, you know, are the same, you know, so let's dive in a little bit into your, you know, DEI initiatives. I know for crew, you were at the global network part of crew, you were helping them along those lines for a few years. And do you have something like that within Forella, the law firm or, and you know, what else do you do to educate and help others feel good about all these things? I mean, do you have people coming up to you and asking you about, oh, how do I come out? You know, I've got this big, I don't know, accounting job or I got this big whatever. And they're afraid of being on, you know, less firm ground if they say something. Do you find that uh, people come to you and ask you about either of these things? Sure. I mean, I, I think that's partially because to your point, I, I'm, I try to be as open as possible, probably to a mm-hmm. fault. Like I am, yeah. everyone knows everything about me. Right. And so <laughs> but, but part of the reason I do that is it's a mixture of things, right? It's, it's like, it's a way to hold myself accountable and to remind mm-hmm. myself of who I am. And it's also a way to just destigmatize a lot of this. And so yes. there's a lot of stigma around masculine presenting queer women like myself and how, how to dress in the workplace, how to, how to hold yourself, how, you know, do I have to, what do I have to do to conform? Can I be my, my true authentic self? And those are the same things that I struggled with when I first started here at Forella. You know, I was in my, my pant, my women's pantsuits and I was trying to, like, I had longer hair. And, um, and I remember my, my first, my first year was the holiday party was coming up 
I went to one of the partners who I worked with, who was the head of the environmental group. And I was like, honestly, I, I wanted to ask you whether you think it would be okay if I wore a tie. Mm-hmm. And because I, he had made me feel comfortable enough to ask him that. And yeah. I, I, I have to say it changed my life because he just said, look, I don't ever want you to feel like you can't be yourself here. And I promise you that nobody else wants that either. And if you get any sense of that, please tell me. Oh, that's great. And, and he's, he's a, you know, a, a straight guy. He's, he's, not a, he's not a member of our, our queer contingent here at Ferella. And that really allowed somebody just saying that allowed yeah. me the confidence to be like, I'm going to be myself. And I started dressing more comfortably and nobody gave a crap at all whatsoever. Right. No, but, you know, kudos to you for having the courage to do it, because that's what starts the change that, you know, can actually help others along the way. Right. Because you feeling that and, and then expressing it, but him embracing it. Right. You know, it, it goes to prove that we often don't really know what other people are thinking about us or where their position is. There's just been such a long standing kind of like, you know, hurt and fear around it that we can easily make up stories. And look, there's evidence that those stories are real for certain people in certain sectors, right? But I just, I think it's absolutely terrific that, you know, you go and you lead the way and and you're being who you are. And then let's face it, doesn't that make you a better everything, a better lawyer, a better friend, a better mom? Because we're now not hiding behind any kind of like pseudo version of ourselves. That's really, that is so crippling to to live in that kind of people pleasing mode. We're like, oh, I'm going to wear this. Okay. Well, they accepted that I'm queer, but you know, maybe they don't want me to look so masculine because I still have to maintain my femininity because this is a very professional environment. I mean, come on, it's a law office, right? And traditionally law officers are are supposed to be kind of buttoned up, right? And you're there to um, be the face of them and to, you know, please the clients across the board. But when we go, yeah. So 2023 is a very different world. And I'm hoping that 2025, 27, 20, let's just go into the future. is going to be a continued movement where we're not really even having as many of conversations along these lines. Yeah, that would certainly be the hope. I mean, like, look, am I being candid? I'm incredibly fortunate that the person that I asked, I trusted enough that he would mm-hmm. respond in the way I needed him to. And that I work at a place where it's open. I have plenty of friends, both in, in San Francisco, outside of San Francisco, who still struggle with this because it is not that kind of environment and they don't feel comfortable. And so one of the things that I've always wanted to do with being open about all of my aspects of you know DEI myself, whether mm-hmm. it's my sobriety, whether it's my queerness, uh, whether it's my mental health struggles, I, I, I want there to be somebody who they know, like somebody else knows they could go to because they are so open about who they are, right? So when I yeah. was questioning myself, I, you know, in terms of like the tie, for instance, there was nobody else I could ask. There was no masculine presenting queer wo- woman in the firm. There was only actually only one other queer person at the firm, queer woman at the firm. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and so it, like now there are more of us, right? And there are more people who are willing to be a voice or to be even just like to take the hit for you kind of, you know, I'm already doing it. So it's safer for you too. Like I, the same with sobriety. I mean, the legal profession is a, is a big drinking profession that everything's a happy hour. Everything's a wine event, you know, clients want to go out for drinks. And so me saying, Oh, I, you know, I, I, I'm sober actually. Uh, I don't, I don't drink. It allows other people for whatever reason they may not be drinking to also say, I'm just going to have a club soda or I'm just going to, you know, it, it just, it opens 
doors. Yeah, you're giving an invitation. It's like an invitation, like a quiet invitation yeah. for those that want to join that that train. And um, right. you know, I, I, you know, let's. It's so funny, right? Because you know, we have the word word normal in our dictionary, and then like, what is normal, right? Yeah, when we look culturally, how we've been raised as to what's normal. So we're supposed to be heterosexual. Uh, okay, I don't know. I mean, we're supposed to like drink like fishes. Uh, I don't know. Like, who is making up all these rules, right? right? You can't go to anything without there being some alcoholic component to it, right? Like yeah. in the workplace. I mean, it just always seems to be so mainstream. And you and I have been trying to make some initiatives to give some alternatives to that because, you know, we both don't drink and, you know, we're better for right. it. Um, you know, it, it's, Although I will tell you, it's funny. I went to um, with a bunch of crew friends last night to uh, her one of the girls' country clubs, and it was a wine pairing dinner. So the whole thing was about wine. <laughs> and they looked at me and they're like, "We know you don't drink, but like, do you, do you want to go?" And I was like, "I really like the company involved. Yeah, I'm coming. You know, oh, and yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, just just like nine of us, but I can do that today because you know, any kind of lure in the other direction, you know, is 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 a while back. So. But, um, you know, you have to do what, what is safe for you. And, um, and some of that stuff takes time. But, you know, uh, I think it's important that everybody understand it doesn't mean that you don't want to be part of stuff. You know, these aren't things that are making us different. In fact, you know, there's, there's a quote that I saw. Let me, let me see if I can find this here. This is a quote from Ola Joseph, who's a renowned speaker and trainer on diversity. And Ola says, diversity is not about how we differ. Diversity is about embracing one another's uniqueness. And that hit when I read that. Yeah. Because what it's telling me is not that we're here to convince anybody on the other side of anything, but that we're celebrating the things that make us unique and that those differences aren't anything like a less than category. You know what I mean? So I, I think that's kind of cool. But you're, you're doing so much, and I'm just so grateful to have met you through Crew. And I'm really excited that we both have the board, the board positions we do because I know that that's going to continue, right? We're gonna, just going to keep running into each other. I mean, we're in the state of California, but California right. is large. It's not as small as New Jersey. So, sure. you know, we're not going to just run into each other at the supermarket, but, you know, we'll see each other at, you know, some of the upcoming conferences. And I just, I, I just appreciate your time, Ashley. You just light me up when I talk to you. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, same, Danielle. I mean, it's been it's been such a it's been such a delight meeting you. I mean, regardless of the the Jersey similarities and the not drinking similarities, you you as a human yeah. being are like a, a beacon of light at some of these events. Not that the other women aren't, but I I was definitely drawn to you. And so I and I'm glad we're working together on on all kinds of things and inclusivity. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, to your point, I think people think of diversity as a bunch of different buckets of things. These are all the ways we're different. All these different people need to hang out with the other different people. And I think that misses the the I. It misses the inclusivity part, which is like, no, I mean, like, to your point last night, you were totally willing to go to the wine pairing dinner. Like, that was fine. Like, yeah. include me. They celebrate the fact that I'm not going to do it the same way and just include me. It doesn't mean I want to yes. be excluded. And I I feel like that for some of like our industry, right? And 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 just it's not about not then inviting us because that'll make us more comfortable. Instead, it's create another space over here for us to get comfortable and then let us join you. And I, I think that's the inclusivity part that that's really critical and that I think people are focusing more attention on beyond just the, the D, the diversity part. That everyone well, you're a trailblazer, on. sister, and I already see you making movement along those and I'll be right by you there. And I'll just, yes. uh, you know, I might have to get better running shoes to keep up with you, but try I will. <laughs> that's awesome, Danielle. 
So thanks for coming on. And I hope you guys have a great weekend. I hope you celebrate that wedding anniversary into Sunday. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. Just enjoy. So good to see you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Before you go, I really want to thank you for joining me today. I really do appreciate you. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate and review Unscripted Pivots on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps me improve and reach more listeners just like yourself. And remember to subscribe to stay updated on future episodes released every Wednesday morning. I have more great content and stories from WTF women coming your way. Until then...